0: Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day.
1: And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today's session 24 in our series, Oh, That First Means That. We're examining a host of popular Bible verses we believed meant one thing, but are discovering they actually mean something quite different. Imagine there's this many misunderstood or misapplied scripture verses. Today's session is so happy together. We'll wrap up our look at the first beatitude in Matthew 5 from last time. If you missed it, just go to faithtalk1360.com, search the menu for local program podcasts. Friends, I'll start out reinforcing a statement I've shared. The Bible really does have a story to tell us. In fact, it's crying out, screaming out to tell us its story. But sadly, we pastors, teachers, and preachers, and even average Christians, make, even force, or manipulate the Bible to tell our story. Whether knowingly or unknowingly, I say shame on us. I'll also drive home another point I've made, second Peter one twenty and twenty one say the Holy Spirit is the author and inspirer of our judeo-Christian scriptures, our Bible, if you will, so shouldn't we respect the Holy Spirit as we read God's Word? Shouldn't God's Word get more respect rather than just cavalierly barking out what we think a verse means? Well, friends, today's goal will be completing where we began last time, unmasking, unraveling, and unpacking this curious biblical word, blessed, to get a better handle on it ourselves as 21st century Christians. Because, again, it's absolutely necessary we strap on 1st century sandals, see through Jewish eyes, hear with Jewish ears, and think with Jewish minds. We tend to read our English Bibles and impose meanings on this portion in Matthew 5, where blessed, our word under scrutiny, appears nine times cherry-picking Bible verses isolates them from their textual, historical, and cultural contexts. I've often pointed out the danger of doing this, as it tempts us to default to speculating a text's meaning, rather than investing a little time to be Bereans searching scripture to see if, in fact, what we've speculated is actually what the text is saying. Friends, here's another case where, right at the get-go, we've got to wear our detect Cap, have our pocket magnifying glass ready, and more carefully scrutinize this entry word, blessed, which sets off the string of pearls in verses three through eleven. The insight of one messianic scholar bears repeating, Rabbi Yeshua, Jesus, is stringing these pearls for us. Each is more precious than gold or diamonds. It's not a set of rules so much as a spiritual vision of the restored heart and mind of those who have trusted in him. So, friends, let's now unmask, unravel, and unpack this string of pearls, this string of terms Old Testament God-followers and 1st-century Christians would hear quite differently than we 21st-century Christians. Last time we learned that no single English word suffices or is adequate as a parallel term for blessed, and that translators choose some different words as synonyms for our English term. Two being, oh, the joys of, and happy are those. And while these phrases are valiant choices on the translator's part, they greatly fall short by leading us to believe that any one of them is adequate or an accurate representation, which they're not. So let's analyze our English word happy. Today's session is so happy together because many of us wrongly think God's main goal in our life is to make us happy, which that is not. We've got to jettison this phony idea that once we become Christians, Christians, our problems will go away. Believing in Jesus does not mean our woes vanish. Instead, the spiritual reality is, friends, that we never have to face or go through our woes alone. Scripture has a way of rocking our world, doesn't it? It tells us what to expect as Christ followers. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world Jesus in John sixteen thirty three. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Paul in Romans 5, 3, and 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, so that you may be complete, lacking in nothing, James in James 1, 2 through 4. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter in 1 Peter 1, 6. Friends, it's a great day for the Christian who has an aha moment, realizing things don't always have to go just right or fine in our lives to view ourselves as blessed. Jesus didn't do this in his Sermon on the Mount. In fact, if our detective's cap is on, our pocket magnifying glass is out, and our first century sandals are on, we'll notice that the human conditions Jesus highlights in Matthew 5... 3-11, 3 through 11 are far from fine or pleasant yet he declares these people blessed a condition or state that no one else in the pagan empire or the jewish religious world acknowledges because jesus's sermon that starts with the beatitudes is countercultural his kingdom is an upside down kingdom a topsy-turvy kingdom his kingdom has a transposed value system. The spiritually wanting and the spiritually proud and arrogant don't have eyes to see this, ears to hear this, or minds to perceive this. And why last time I highlighted Jesus' account of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18:9 through 14 Reread it if you need to, friends. Let it jar your spiritual world. There, Jesus compares a spiritually dead, proud, and arrogant, revered religious leader with a humble, contrite, and despised tax collector. Recall we saw in Matthew 5 3 that Jesus condenses scriptures from Isaiah and Psalms, like Isaiah 66 2. These are the ones I look on with favor. God talking, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. And Psalm thirty-four eighteen. the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Friends, these are not necessarily happy conditions, feelings, or circumstances, are they? We must carefully distinguish between Hebrew happiness and our westernized Gentile version of it. The first layer of the cultural onion we must peel back is the language layer. Happiness can be a translation of the Hebrew and Greek words, yet we dare not impose a modern-day definition of happiness on them. Our modern English word comes from Middle English and Old Norse meaning lucky or happy. Happy is an expanded from hap. The idea being happiness relies on or is dependent on favorable happenings or circumstances. But biblical joy, contentment, or peace is different from human happiness, almost indescribable. Come on, we know this, right? How often have we lived through challenging and upsetting circumstances, yet we tell others we have this uncanny sense of joy, contentment, and peace, knowing God is in control and working things out. Interestingly, Beatitudes is not even a Bible word. It's borrowed from the Latin Vulgate translation of 1590. The Latin means happy, fortunate, even wealthy. But both the Old Testament Hebrew and the first century Greco-Roman cultural context demand we interpret Jesus' Beatitudes in light of him re-expressing truths already given by the prophets and psalmists in the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus counts on his Jewish audience to know the Hebrew. Hebrew literary device intensive exclamation and why our english translations should more accurately reflect this by beginning with oh the bliss of or oh the blessedness of and eliminate the verb are as the original language does in many cases like psalm 1 Friends, the important contexts I've shared convince me that Jesus' intent in the Beatitudes is to portray a present reality existing side by side and not a result as adding the verb in English implies. So this becomes a challenging expression to convey in English and why we must be careful to not make Jesus confer on people a Quote unquote, blessing for something they've done. In other words, this state of bliss or blessedness is not a result of their works or actions. Rather, Jesus is God's mouthpiece declaring that these particular people are already in a condition that gains them access to God. And the first beatitude enlightens us to this condition, Poverty of spirit, or as I like to say, spiritual bankruptcy, a humble recognition of one's spiritual deficiency and realizing one's need for spiritual redemption. From God's vantage point, friends, this place is one in a position to become united or one with God. Jesus is basically crying out that those who recognize and acknowledge their spiritual poverty in humility are now in a position to be accepted and welcomed into God's kingdom. The blessed or blissful state is such because it's not based on health, wealth, or material possessions, but rather on the assurance and experience that we live under the guardianship and faithful care of the gracious lord of life and this blessedness or joy is not human happiness or joy in the sense of an emotional surge neither is it something we get from god rather it's a state of our soul a condition that abounds despite adverse human circumstances because of our oneness with god in other words our vital connection to him or abiding in him Our oneness with God supplies the source of this inner condition. Well, friends, I closed out last session discussing the first beatitude in Matthew 5.3, inserting the Hebrew and first century meanings into its wording. I'll recap it today and then launch us into the remaining beatitudes and their first century meanings. I proposed we hear it like this. Oh, the blissful state, the enviable, fortunate, and favored position with God, the spiritually prosperous, are the poor in spirit, that is, those devoid of spiritual arrogance, realizing their spiritual poverty, rating themselves insignificant, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them." True spirituality often requires a sense of non-remenial brokenness. That is, we sense we're not whole. In fact, we're a mess and need God's healing in our inner being. This runs counter to the world's prideful humanism that we're all okay. But true spirituality admits our blessed neediness, recognizing we're poor in spirit and there's an inward desperate ache for God to heal us. Isaiah's cry, woe is me, should be our cry, and our cry to God should humbly acknowledge and recognize our great need for deliverance. Remember, friends, Jesus said more than once, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted Psalm 34 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Pride elevates our ego, and then others become a threat to our self-imposed will. So, friends, the reversal of this first beatitude becomes, Oh, the misery of the proud in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of self. In a sense, pride turns into a voluntary exile. When enslaved by pride, we cease validating the existence of others and see them as a menace. A perfect example of this is King Herod's paranoid response to Jesus' birth in Matthew chapter 2. Okay, friends, Beatitude 2. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's insert the Hebrew and first century meanings and hear it like this. Oh, the blissful state, the enviable, fortunate, and favored position with God are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, friends, this one's a paradox, since those who truly mourn are far from happy, right? But as detectives, with our detective's cap on, our pocket magnifying glass in hand, we'll discern that the second beatitude is linked to the first one like a string of pearls. So this second beatitude naturally cries out for us to interpret it as conveying those who mourn over their own sins. And another realization here is that those who mourn over their sins are repentant. This seems illogical in the world's eyes. The world's philosophy is, eat, drink, and be merry, while the Messiah says, mourn now. Mourning then becomes a stepping stone to eternal blessedness. Paul expressed it this way, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow leads to death. 2 Corinthians 7:10 The world's system has no place for mourning human sin, but in love God mourns over a lost world. Do we? Those who mourn grieve their sin. The danger sign is when we deny our sin and refuse to mourn over it. This blinds us to God's forgiveness and consolation. Look at John 9:39 through 41. One Old Testament parallel to those who mourn is Isaiah 61, beginning declaring that the Spirit of the Lord God grants comfort to those who mourn in Zion, bestowing on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. The reversal of this becomes, oh, the misery of those who love this world system, for they will receive no consolation in the next world. Here's Beatitude 3. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Again, let's hear it this way. Oh, the blissful state, the enviable, fortune and favored position with God, are the lowly and humble, for they shall inherit the land. Here, Jesus virtually quotes Psalm 37:11, that says, "...but the meek or lowly and humble will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity." Notice, everything comes from a state of humility. Those willing to admit their inner poverty and mourn over their sins can let go of the need to manage their appearance, control, or bully others to advance their own causes. So now they're free to surrender their lives to the faithful, caring, and glorious Lord. When they're wronged, they humbly seek neither revenge nor vindication, but restoration. In 1 Peter two twenty-two and 23, Peter says, He, Jesus, committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. While they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him, Who judges justly. Though the original promise was for Israel inheriting the land of Canaan, Jesus seems to widen the promise and elevate it to a higher level now that the gospel age is here. Perhaps Jesus was alluding to those renewed, humble, and unpretentious servants of his who now reap more benefits from their land out of the new appreciation for it versus the unregenerate who amass land for themselves and cleave to their temporary possessions with no thought to any eternal possessions. We know people like this, don't we? Well, friends, the reversal of this is, Oh, the misery of those who demand their rights in this world, for they will receive no inheritance in the next world. Here's Beatitude 4. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hear it this way. Oh, the blissful state, the enviable, fortunate, and favored position with God are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled or fed. Hunger and thirst here are vivid words expressing desperation to stay alive. The spiritual parallel Jesus makes is that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and pant for it, for themselves and for their world, will ultimately find satisfaction. In other words, be fully fed. One Old Testament parallel is Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. Jesus is our spiritual satisfaction. He is the bread of life, the living water. Only the righteousness of God truly satisfies our human heart and soul. Only we who pant and hunger for deliverance from moral bankruptcy and grieve in our hearts will be satisfied. For us, God will wipe away our tears. Only we who empty ourselves before God will find our desires filled. For us, God will satisfy us with inner peace and joy. There's a paradox here, friends. Ultimate satisfaction will never be found in finite things. Only infinite treasures bring infinite blessedness. The reverse here is, Oh, the misery of those who hunger and thirst for worldliness, for they shall never be fully satisfied. Beatitude 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Hear it like this, O the blissful state, the enviable, fortunate, and favored position with God, or the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Recall, friends, that the first century world despised mercy or pity. Even the Pharisees attributed suffering and poverty to sin. Yet Jesus railed on them with his harsh criticism, Woe to you, teachers and Pharisees! hypocrites you neglect the most important matters of the law justice mercy and faithfulness you blind guides hindus and buddhists have karma that suffering is a necessary evil and an unchangeable consequence for sins either in this life or a past life. Jesus corrected these faulty premises, teaching that people should show sympathy and mercy to all who are afflicted. Read Proverbs twenty-one thirteen. Sacrificial love is the outward practice of the merciful. So the reversal is, oh, the misery of the unmerciful, for they will certainly not be reciprocated. Beatitude 6. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Hear it like this. Oh, the blissful state, the enviable, fortunate, and favored position with God are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Friends, in Hebrew thought, heart includes the mind, emotions, and will. In other words, the inner self. The heart stands for the whole person. This beatitude's key is that the pure-hearted have no desire or taste for falsehood. The psalmist asks, who may stand in God's holy place? Then answers, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear falsely. Psalm 24. If we're two-faced or have a mixed allegiance with Christ, God, we won't see him. Conversely, the pure in heart see God all around them, even if others are blind. The reversal here is oh, the misery of those with divided loyalties, they shall not see God. Beatitude 7. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Hear it like this. Oh, the blissful state, the enviable, fortunate, and favored position with God are the reconcilers, peacemakers, if you will, for they shall be called sons of God. Shalom, the Hebrew root of peace, is an amazing word. It's a holistic term meaning wholeness, healing, completeness. It's not just the absence of strife, but includes enjoying God and seeking peace and reconciliation with others. It entails a drive to pursue reconciliation. 1 Peter 3:10 and 11 and Hebrews 12:14 illustrate this idea and this use of the term. It also conveys reconciling people with God as other scriptures show. So peacemakers are in line with God's will and work. Jesus said those practicing shalom are called children of God. The reversal is, "Oh the misery of the troublemakers for they shall be called sons of the devil." Lastly, Beatitude Eight: Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hear it this way: Oh, the blissful state, the enviable, fortunate, and favored position with God! Are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Hebrew prophets who spoke for God were not a glum bunch who regularly nursed their wounds. In the next two verses, Jesus tells us who suffer are in good company and should rejoice for the reward ahead. Persecution for the cause of righteousness is cause for celebration. Remember Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail in Acts 16? Jesus often warned against false shows of righteousness and religious externalism. He clearly opposed the idea that entrance into the kingdom of heaven could be earned. Well, friends, my take is that the last two verses, 11 and 12, serve as a finale. They may be taken as comforting words of future reward in store for those suffering persecution now, or we should expect opposition for being Christians. After all, Paul said to Timothy, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're near the end of our program, which will close with an email where you may write me with your feedback. The podcasts of these sessions are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts and keep in mind that a word from the word is a listener supported program. So please consider financially helping to keep a word from the word on the air with your kind support. Just email me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends. If you would like to let Pastor Tom
0: know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the Word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.